Lieutenant Michael Malone. Section Commander George Reynolds. Company Adjutant Patrick Doyle. And Volunteer Richard Murphy. Edward Ennis. Pala Mackin. And Andrew Joseph Murphy. Wednesday, about six or seven o'clock on the Wednesday evening, our ammunition ran out and we had to evacuate. And we tried to get on through to the next unit, but with the house was surrounding, we were arrested just going out in the back, the back gate. Uh, Paddy died, he's died since. He was first to go out, and I followed him out, and I had a loaded pistol in my pocket, and I was probably going to gave way and fired us. When they were, saw the fellow pulling the trigger, saw the pulling the trigger, I ducked and the bullet went over my head into a, a stable gate. There was a doctor inside, a tenant of one of the soldiers, and he came out. And by him coming out, he saved me getting the, the second bullet. And of course, at night we used to sleep in the bakery when we'd be relieved on sex, or if we were on in the on at night we were relieved to sleep in the day and there were sacks of flour made into beds down in the down in the bakery yard well <clears throat> commandant de valera uh, was in complete control of everybody on the in Bowdens and upon the railway line and he gave strict instructions uh, <clears throat> regarding the taking of any drink from the railway station. Naturally, at my age, it didn't concern me, but there were some other men there who would have really liked a, a ball of malt or a bottle of stout, but he said the first man who touched a drink would be shot. So <clears throat> I satisfied myself with some chocolate. We had a feverish morning in Camden Row, uh, unpacking some guns and that had arrived and distributing to members of the company who were still unarmed. We were then dismissed in the early morning of Sunday with orders to uh, remain in Dublin. So on Easter Monday morning about uh, I think it was about 10 to 10 I received an order to parade at Aylesford Terrace at the corner of Hatch Street and near the university building. And the parade was ordered for half past ten. Now, I was a mobiliser of the company and I had to mobilise a man on my right and on my left. Uh, one of these men was uh, Section Commander George Reynolds, who uh, at that time was... Uh, his people owned an old Dublin establishment called the Golden Ball. It's a, a general business. He himself was a, a silversmith. But I mobilised him anyway on Easter uh, Monday morning and the return to my own home then, I got my rifle and left the house with 
my brother, and another member of the company who had arrived at the house. We got to uh, Earlsford Terrace, where both A and C companies of the 3rd Battalion had been ordered to parade. After waiting for some time, I needn't tell you we weren't there at half past ten at the time, but I'd say in around eleven or so, uh, there was only really a handful of men. But by half past eleven or so, between the two companies, we had the, um, I'd say roughly, about sixty men. Uh, these were under the command of... Uh, Captain Joe O'Connor and Lieutenant Sean Gilfoyle of A Company and Captain Simon Donnelly and Lieutenant Michael Malone of C Company. Shortly after half past eleven we marched off in the direction of Mount Street. And just as we got there, a small detachment of the men, uh, mainly those who had bicycles with them, left the main column and went towards Mount Street Bridge uh, under the command of Michael Malone. These were the party which eventually took part in the Battle of Mount Street Bridge. Uh, we continued on until we reached Clarence Street, which is now, I think, named Macken Street. Uh, when we got there, we found Commandant de Valera awaiting us. Meanwhile, B Company and D Company of the battalion, which were mainly based on the Rings End area, mm. had uh, mobilised at their different points. B Company at uh, 144 Brunswick Street, then, now Pierce Street, and uh, D Company... Uh, mobilised in Ring's End. Uh, B Company was under the command of Captain Sean McMahon, who later became a Major General. And uh, D Company was under the command of Lieutenant Joe Byrne. Uh, Coming back to our, my own particular position, about 12 o'clock, uh, Commandant de Valera gave us the order to load our rifles, and we entered Bowlands. I uh, joined the IRA in 1916. At that time, I was just 15 years of age, and... <clears throat> We did some uh, shooting practice in uh, 
a premises off Camden Street. Uh, coming up to the to Easter week, uh, there were rumours that we were going to have a route march. And uh, I was called from my home. I lived at that time in 103 Pierce Street. And I was got a message to report to a premises in Pierce Street. I think the number is uh, 173. Uh, it, is bes it was beside the then working man's Benefit Billing Society, of which my father was a director. Uh, on arrival at this house, I found the place stacked to the ceiling with rifles. I <clears throat> was told that my duty was to uh, regard these rifles uh, that day and all the all that night I went home and uh, my mother asked me where I'd been I told her I'd been to a place on the far side of the street but I didn't indicate to her what I was doing so I had to report back the next day I think that would be Easter Saturday or Sunday and then on the Monday morning uh, we were paraded by Commandant de Valera as he was then called in Pierce Street and we marched past my home my mother was standing at the door I had a rifle on my shoulder and uh, she seemed to be crying. I wasn't in the, uh, what you call, the mobilization. On Monday, you see, I had left my residence and come down to live in Sandy Mount. I was out of touch and when they sent out those mobilization papers, they went to my mother's place, you see. I had married and come to live down here. So I went in on Monday night. That was the first. And uh, I was... The, on Tuesday morning, I was posted in a, a cottage in Grand Canal Street, along with Henry Bourne. Uh, that was facing up Grattan Street, just the the uh, British Army were passing down along. Uh, at that time, they hadn't got as far as Mount Street Bridge, but we were uh, expecting that they would eventually, and we were covering this Grand Grattan Street up as far as the... There was a hospital in Mount Street facing down Grattan Street. And uh, I was there for two days with uh, Henry Bourne and somebody else, and then I was posted onto the bridge over Clarendon Street that time, that's Pather Mackin Street. I posted on the railway bridge, mm -hmm. uh, still facing up Grattan Street.
We had a full view of the troops advancing. They came advancing from Dunleary. And we had a full view of the troops advancing up North Long North. They were that very little cover. They had to go from garden to garden over the railing, from garden to garden along the housing. And we had a we couldn't miss them, really. We fired on them there. Mick Malone was the first to meet them. He was in the house below us. There was only two of them there. I can't remember the other man's name now. I'll think of it again. And Malone was killed in that house. And the other fellas, oh yes, Seamus Grace was his name. Seamus, he was in 25 and a half in a row. He died since. So they were, they were, they were, they had a, they had a very severe set. The, the, the British troops were badly beaten. There was a couple of hundred of them killed. What was it like? What did you feel like at the time? Well, we just fired away at them. I had a mortar rifle, only one shooter at a time. You had to load it every time you fired a shot. And it was very, it was very severe. I just didn't bother, just kept banging away. Troops would make a rush forward and, of course, fire be opened. They were immediately shot down. Some of them rushed into the houses, came into the houses and came out again, and even some of them were shot on the doorsteps of the houses coming out of it. But that continued for several hours till the British commanders apparently were getting pretty annoyed about the whole thing, and they uh, eventually... Uh, to use the words, indeed, of the British official dispatch, somewhere about five o'clock, they were told they would have to advance at all costs. They then received some more reinforcements, including bombing parties from the uh, training school, which was at Ellen Park, which is now the Vincent's Hospital grounds. And they moved forward. Again, regular hell opened up. Uh, the whole thing was deafening. And I need mean, bullets were flying here, there, and everywhere. <laughs> but they... Um, Somewhere about seven o'clock, they got imperative orders to take the position. And they moved forward again. And to use their own words of, which were included in, in uh, uh, Maxwell's dispatch, he said, the whole column moved forward and the battalions uh, charged in successive waves. And the position was taken. But then he added in the dispatch again, uh, not, I'm sorry to say, or worse to that effect, without serious loss. Well, the serious loss was 
think four officers were killed. Uh, or these included, uh, uh, certainly included a battalion commander and a battalion adjutant. And I think uh, there were 14 officers wounded and 216 other ranks were killed or wounded. Now, one doesn't want to make comparisons, but it was, to use his own words, a very serious cost, because our actual losses in that struggle were 1 man in number 25 that was left in Michael Malone was killed 3 men were killed in Clan William House and 3 men in the remaining part of the area in other words we we lost 7 men in all after the surrender I was sent from um, uh, the RDS grounds to the then Richmond Barracks and I met there um, a man named Grace who had been with Malone, Lieutenant Malone, in Clan William House and he described to me how the soldiers burst in the door and he himself had been, was in the kitchen of the house when the soldiers burst in, they fired through the door, but he had been, he was lying on the floor. So he said they went up the stairs then, Malone was standing on the top of his, the, the stairs, and he emptied his gun into the upcoming, to the soldiers coming up the stairs. And, but they uh, got him then and they bayoneted him, I believe, in a room at the top of the house. After the fall of Clan William House, the troops then crossed the bridge and come down. That was then it was our first, our first uh, experience of firing, and the firing did come down. Grattan Steel was obvious that it would do, mm -hmm. and uh, the sandbags. The firing was pretty heavy, you know. The sandbags were occasionally were just ripped off the wall. We were, we were fairly lucky. Of course, the breastwork was good, but uh, when you'd rise up behind the sandbags, well, you were just taking a chance, but so on there. And uh, I, after that then, for a couple of days, I was back, another two days in the little house. And by this time, all the windows were shot out of that little cottage there and the wall, pictures on the wall, everything was riddled. I was placed up on the railway line along with some others and uh, in due course the shooting started and uh, things developed from there and uh, we of course had no place to sleep except either in Bowdoin's Mill or under the railway carriages on the line.
Oh, the food uh, which we were supplied with was very poor indeed. Of course, it was all improvised cooking, uh, potatoes and uh, cheese and that kind of thing. Uh, fortunately, I managed to get some chocolate in in Westland Row Station, which helped an awful lot. But I was also helped by some of the uh, residents around Pier Street there who passed up uh, tea and homemade bread and butter uh, by means of a, a, a string passed over the railway wall. Did you see anyone be actually shot near you? Oh, I did indeed. So uh, many uh, men shot there, particularly, uh, I remember being on duty behind some sandbags up near Russell Road Station, and uh, there was a, one of my comrades there uh, having his meal on the sitting down the railway signals, and uh, he got a bullet through the head. So I mentioned this matter to Commandant de Valera, and I said I believe that the shot had come from Sir Patrick Dunn's hospital. He was incredulous. He said, that couldn't happen. He says, you wouldn't, nobody would fire at boss. He says, you're not naturally, he says, to fire upon a hospital. So I said, you'd better see for yourself. So he got down behind the sandbags, waited for some time, and he asked me for my rifle. So he fired a single shot, and there were no more shooting from that direction at any rate. What was it like to be under fire as a young boy of, say, 15 and a half? Well, it was very frightening at the start, but then I more or less uh, got accustomed to it. And uh, I didn't expect, of course, to get away from the uh, rising alive. I had more or less accepted the fact that I would probably at some stage be killed because the firing was very intense. And at one stage they used... Um, these pom-pom uh, guns to shell the railway carriages. And uh, the noise was uh, dreadful there at times. And very frightening, of course, too. But then, I suppose, like everything else, you accept the situation as it is. What was your impression of your comrades in general? Oh, there was no panic or anything else. Nobody ever uh, uh, thought of going home or anything like that or deserting. We all stood together there. Uh, we had, we realised what we had been committed to, and we all played our part. I don't know one single man who said I wish to call was at home. The British forces, after forcing that bridge, were certainly not more than, I'd say at any point, more than four to five hundred yards away from us. As close as that? Yes. Well, there was only the one uh, parallel between us. See, next, we were the next parallel. And as a matter of fact, I myself was in the, what was then the old dispensary in Grand Canal Street. Uh, we had some furniture in the area of the house which we used for raising up the level to the street level, you see. And during the night, when things had died down, when firings had died down, we could actually hear them speaking to one another. So, the uh, result was, of course, that they undoubtedly had us sort of contained, but they made no effort to come for us. <laughs> 
Tell me, how did you feel during this time yourself? Can you remember your own emotions or feelings? Well, uh, yes and no, in the sense that, as I say, I was a very young fellow, and uh, possibly, I may tell you, uh, and this is not boastful, I hadn't any real fear. Uh, the only time I remember having any real fear was one night when, during the middle of the week, the commandant came to the house, to the place I was in, you see, and he is uh, obviously pretty worn, worn out with anxiety and, and uh, I suppose, responsibility. And I had, at that time, a British military officer, a prisoner in the house. And we were treating this man quite well in the normal course, and undoubtedly he was, in, he was very nervous. I don't blame him now, looking back on it. Uh, I, I wouldn't blame him because, of course, it was... He was one amongst many, if you like. Well, there were four or five of us in this particular house, you see. And, but we treated him well. And uh, The commandant came to the house one night and he made to get a short rest. And I remember having the prisoner sitting in an old wicker armchair at one side of the room and commandant de Valera sitting in another arm, an old armchair at the other side of the room, and I felt very responsible. It got pretty banned later in the week, and uh, uh, on one occasion I went out with Commandant de Valera and uh, one or two others to uh, stop the gas works from operating. We, li we went into the gas works and I had instructions to get the engine stopped there and to uh, take to have the, some of the machines dismantled so that they couldn't be started up again. I shan't forget the uh, face of one of the employees there when I went in and told him these engines should be stopped and he said to me, oh Sonny, he said, these haven't been stopped for the past 20 years. Well, said, I, you'll have 20 minutes to stop them, I said, because I said, I have my instructions. And uh, very reluctantly, he stopped the engines. And uh, in, with the help of some others, he had some of the parts dismantled, which we took away into Boland's Mill. What's your first recollection of hearing about a surrender? Uh, that was on... Uh, the following Sunday, I think. And uh, there was a rumour around the place that we were to surrender. And finally, uh, we were all called into the mill and uh, uh, Commandant de Valera announced the fact that we were to going to negotiate, trying to negotiate a surrender. We had in the mill at that time a cadet who was taken prisoner off a train coming in from Dunleary. And... <clears throat> Uh, Commandant de Valera, this uh, cadet and myself went out uh, through the then dispensary at the uh, corner of Grand Canal Street 
Now, that, of course, place has been demolished and the present Boland's Mill stands there. But when we got out on the steps, the uh, military opened fire upon us and we had to rush back into the... We had a, a, a white flag, as a matter of fact. Uh, um, Commandant de Valera was ho holding the white flag and uh, uh, we were fired upon, nevertheless. So when we got back into the uh, bakery, uh, Commandant de Valera gave me his automatic and told me to surrender, when, but he would go out again to try to negotiate the surrender. I really don't know how that was managed myself, but uh, I marched out anyhow with the rest of the men. We lined up, marched out uh, from the bakery into Grattan Street, where we grounded our arms. Uh, from Grattan Street, we marched into Mount Street, which was filled with the uh, British soldiers. I had in my pocket a revolver, my own revolver, and some ammunition. These were 22 long bullets, which were really too long for the revolver I had, and somebody had cut the nose off the bullets. Well, I didn't realise the uh, gravity of doing that, but I found some of these bullets in my overcoat pocket, and uh, I took them out, and a British soldier standing by, he said, Say, Sonny, he said, these are dumb dumb bullets. I said, I don't know what a dumb dumb bullet is. He said, taking the nose off my that, he says, these are very dangerous. He said, to conflict uh, grave injuries upon a man. So he asked me for the bullets. I gave them to him and he put them into a, a, a road drain nearby. I was very grateful for that. I realised that he might have saved my life. We were... We're all surprised and we're all recalled from various places and lined up in the in the flower store and De Valera addressed the troops and told them the position and uh, he was very disappointed and disgusted with the whole thing I imagine and but said there was nothing for it that we had come out we had come out on an order to come out and we were bound to obey the order to to surrender. I was taken to Lad Lane Police Station. I was tied up with a pull. You know where that pull through is? Mm -hmm. Cleaning a rifle. I was tied by my hands behind my back with a pull through and marched off to Lad Lane Police Station. And uh, the first man I met that and he was my boss. I worked in Lambert Blinds and Grafton Street. Mm -hmm. He was, a, he was a, the opposite way, thinking. He was amazing. You remember you? I was in anything like that. Although I, I drove a horse and van. I used to use the horse and van for removing weapons and all that kind of thing, one place or another, without their knowledge. Apart from the actual rising, of course, I remember the uh, the uh, time we were interned in the Richmond barracks. Uh, there were about 60 of us in the room. There was no sanitary accommodation there, and it was the, with the greatest difficulty we could get out to the toilets. Uh, after some time there, we were paraded on the Barrack Square for deportation. Uh, a British officer mounted on a lorry called out the names of those for deportation. And I had the misfortune to ask a soldier standing near me if the name, the last name called out, was Flynn or Dlynn. So 
Uh, the soldier, decently enough, went up to the officer on the, on the lorry and asked him, and he said, it doesn't matter with so-and-so. He says, put the bastard over there. So I was deported with some Kerry men instead of my own comrades. So we were marched, we were lined up then and marched down uh, through the city, down along the quays to the north wall. And the, uh, there were a lot of women. There were two rows of soldiers on each side and uh, a lorry behind us with a, a machine gun mounted on it. And uh, I say this much, that but for the soldiers, the two rows of uh, soldiers on either side, we might have fared very badly with some of the women of Dublin. They shouted to, to shoot the bastards. Uh, I suppose they were soldiers' wives and that kind of thing, but we certainly weren't very popular on the way down to the boat. Well, we were put down to the hold of the boat, which hadn't been cleaned out. There was cattle manure, the cattle boat, of course. And we had to stand down in the hold of that boat all night while we crossed over to Hollyhead. We were uh, issued with a tin of uh, corned beef, or as they called it then, bully beef, and uh, a biscuit, a large soldier's biscuit, which were hard rations for the military at the time. And uh, when we arrived at Hollyhead, we were uh, put on a train and uh, arrived in London the following morning. Well, <clears throat> we arrived, I think, at uh, Wandsworth Common Station and we were marched to uh, Wandsworth Prison. But what struck me as most extraordinary was the lack of demonstration by the citizens of London against us at the time. They just looked at, looked at us in a curious kind of way, but there was certainly no demonstration, anti-Irish demonstration at that time. But my... Uh, most lasting impression was when uh, the gates of Wandsworth Prison closed behind me. I felt my heart sinking and I was very upset, more upset than I was during the rebellion of Easter week. Oh, there was a great spirit of comradeship and brotherhood, almost spiritual between the men on that occasion. Can you remember then what it was like towards the end of no. the week? That position remained like that. We were still being fired at and firing whenever we got an opportunity. Uh, but there was no suggestion of surrender. We could hear the noise of the artillery going in, in the city and that sort of thing. We had had a, a crack of a shell ourselves in the building, one of the buildings I was in. And, uh, but... There was no suggestion of surrender. And as a matter of fact, we were looking forward to a possible all-out attack on our position towards the end of the week. There had been... Uh, Rumours began to penetrate into us, you see, from outside, that something had happened in the city, and that uh, surrender had taken place, actually, in the city. But even on Saturday, all our positions were intact, with the exception of the main Mount Bridge position. Uh, all the positions were being manned in exactly the same fashion, and there were, there were no suggestion. 
so that when we did get the order that we were going to surrender, there was consternation. As a matter of fact, fellas actually got their rifle to try to smash them, which is rather foolish against by bashing them off the ground and this class of thing. But discipline prevailed in the long run. And our group marched out. The remnants of it anyway marched out just the same as we had marched in in military array. <laughs> Put it that way.